Thank you. Right. Are you suggesting that someone's trying to make a real-life sequel? Stab 2? Who'd want to do that? Sequels suck. No. Two in the box! Ready to go! We be fast and they be slow! Wow! A second Super Saiyan? Second in order, perhaps, but by no means in stature. Your fight is with me now. I'll have my revenge and Deathstalker, too. Man, I can't fucking believe this. Another basement, another elevator. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? Oh, please, please. By definition alone, they're inferior films. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we warned you. Centuries ago, a toy maker set out to build the perfect puzzle box. A gift that would bring enchantment to all who possessed it. He never dreamed that this simple toy was the key to the gates of hell. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Now, centuries later, a scientist has unlocked its secret. And the battle for the future of mankind is about to be fought across the boundaries of time. Welcome to Oblivion. Hellraiser. <laughs> Bloodline. Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to Inside the Sequel. You know, this is the podcast where we talk about sequel movies that do not get enough love or attention um, that they deserve. And we come on here to talk about them and recommend them to you. Um, it's the Halloween season, so happy Spooktober to all those listening. Uh, if you're back uh, again after our first episode on The Exorcist 2, uh, welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that episode because we got a great one for you today. I'm your host as always, Chris. And today we are talking about... My birth year uh, as well with the release of the 1996 sequel, Hellraiser 4 Bloodline. And with me today, I have returning guests, highly anticipated. Um, it's a guy I was very interested in when I was in my teens, just listening to him um, talk about zombie movies. And then he's back after talking about Friday the 13th Part 5 a year ago. He's back again on a full moon to talk about Hellraiser 4. We have published author Mark Wheaton. Mark, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Thank you for having me back on the pod. So. Oh yeah, no problem. You know, after you were talking about Toby Hooper and Sam Raimi a year ago, I was like, I got to get this guy back on again. So, and now we're going to be talking about you know, flesh. Clive Barker. Le- yeah, Clive <laughs> Barker, flesh. And- like fashion, like little <laughs> autograph headshots of Clive Barker on screen. <laughs> I was getting a, I was getting my copy of Hellbound Heart, and I was like, oh. Like Clive put a headshot like in this, and I was like, "Oh, oh, okay, I forgot. Okay, this is great." So. Oh, headshots! That's so interesting. Was that a thing uh, like the in the Clay Barker uh, days when he was making no, films? no author ever signed headshots to anyone ever. But I don't know. I guess Clive 
Uh, it's like with when they they stamped the label on him like the the best author since stephen king he really took that as like his career no it's funny because he got that it was the quote that ended up on every book it was uh i've seen the future of horror and his name is clive barter stephen king stephen king has blurbed a billion books but (laughs) his and i mean he did the same with uh, evil dead he like really was a proponent of that but i have seen that blurb used on so many editions of clive barker's work over the years that it almost feels like he could never escape that that he could net mm-hmm. that stephen king anointed him in that way so he could never surpass him in some way and barker is such a different writer and i still think the books of blood at least the first four uh short story collections are some of the greatest horror ever written and i think it i think it's better than a lot of stephen king work and i just i think barker in his influence and what he was doing was so far ahead of his time and i think that the more every generation that discovers his short fiction in particular is just like wow no one was doing this and it's crazy and it's uh, it was very far thinking so I'm glad that he is still being read and still being read. And Candyman movie came out. Now the new Hellraiser. So people, every time there's a movie, hopefully they'll also discover his books again. That would be cool because like there is, I, it's interesting because, uh, you know, moving back to Chicago, uh, there was a, there's a podcast called the Losers Club podcast. And uh, they, they, they're based it all on like Stephen King's movies and books and adaptations and they did a uh, three-day movie marathon at the Music Box called Creep Show, and they played yeah. a bunch of you know Stephen King's like ad- movie adaptations, and uh, uh, it made me think like, wow, there are so many Stephen King movie adaptations. And then it's like, what other kind of author do you see that in like that kind of genre? And it's like, I think Clive Barker, but outside of Hellraiser and maybe Candyman, I can't think. I don't, I, I don't, I haven't seen Nightbreeders. Um, but the thing about Stephen King, I always say this. One of my favorite horror subgenre is Stephen King movies because it has like that fall, like yeah. autumn feel a lot of times. Um, but with Clive Barker, what I've seen his movies um, or things he's produced, I mean, he how he even had a video game I think produced Undying. at one point. Yeah, yeah. and which it was just, a like, very interesting game. It looked crazy so, as hell, but it yeah. just seems like his thing was like very different you know we talked before recording like todd mcfarlane and like his yeah. like artwork and in writing it felt very different at the time too it's not like frank miller you know it's not like anything like that in like the 90s uh, but it's weird because i like you said they kind of came they were ahead of their time it does kind of feel like that because they're like now getting appreciated more now and what's I wonder that, why that roiling is. flesh and just as we're going through a pandemic and everybody's body erupts against them it's very <laughs> There's something Barker, there have been other authors that do this, but Barker really, the body horror element of just in the visceral nature of his stuff, it just, his stuff can be very disgusting. It never goes like, it's never exploitive in that way, but his stuff is, one of his best stories is about two villages in um, Eastern Europe that fight each other by becoming giants and the people um, like of one village with leather straps, build themselves up into a giant made of a thousand people. And then it fights another giant of a thousand people. And they're the people who are on the feet are stomped and crushed and collapsed. And, and then the, one of the giants 
goes mad. There's a collective madness. And one of the witnesses of it in the last beat joins the madness and just carries off with this careening giant into the night. And it's just so not anything any other writer would ever write. And it's just visceral and about collective man is there's a lot of Lovecraft in it, but there's also a lot of just bodies getting churned up and that, and it's not exploitive. It's not like they, he doesn't revel in the blood and the broken, but he does, but it isn't over revel in the blood and the broken bones, but he wants you to know that these are, that this is just humans getting devoured by this old folklore folkloric way of solving a dispute between villages mm. so it's no one's like, doing stuff like that in the 80s yeah it's like you, you know? think about like you know like nightmarish like artwork and you think of like hr greiger and like the fusion yeah. of body machine it's almost something like that but it's like instead of it with something inanimate it's like flesh on flesh making something new yeah there's no metal it's mm -hmm. that it's it's giger's work but with that like just i mean that's one of the things that's amazing about the new bruckner hellraiser the Cenobites before, there was leather, there was new stuff added to the body. But with this, so often the decorations, the frills, everything with the Cenobites is their own ripped flesh open and turned into design, which is very what we were talking about with Todd McFarlane. That was such a thing that Barker was doing when he designed the Tortured Souls uh, figures. Mm. So much of it was about taking flesh and rending it in different directions. And I really liked that Bruckner, with this version of Hellraiser, decided to make every odd piece a part of the body. Nothing, nothing was really added, unlike a lot of the other Hellraiser sequels, where suddenly you see a device. You see, like, someone killed by compact discs has CDs in his head, and it looks it's just stupid. This had a <laughs> method to it. So It's just so, like, early Silent Hill, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Silent Hill feels very... I remember seeing the first Silent Hill movie oh, and being yeah. like, wow, the imagery in here is unbelievably cool. And it yes. felt a little Barker-influenced. So mm -hmm. definitely Maybe one of the not more, at uh, all, but it was pretty great. It was definitely like one of the underrated early 2000s movies for me, for sure. So yeah. they got Scream Factory put that movie out. Um, I mean, that's another one. We were talking about Stephen King. When Stephen King directed a movie, Maximum Overdrive. When Clive directed a movie... Hellraiser and <laughs> you know and Nightbreed and uh, there's all sorts of stuff but it's uh it's um it is weird when you have writers jump into directing because that mm -hmm. never happens so yeah especially novels. when especially when you have a like a, a special effects artist yeah to direct a film now with before we even get to Hellraiser 4 that was the big thing you sold me on was that the director wanted to get his name off of it and yeah. I was like, wow, no way. And it's like, honestly, I'd only watch up to Hellraiser 2. So I went back and rewatched all the first three um, and then watched the fourth one for this episode. And I have to say, man, rewatching Hellraiser 1 and 2, it's just, it's just such a treat, you know? It's just, yeah. I don't think most movies compare to those. Hellraiser 1, it's, it also helps it because Clive had, had done theater for so long, like really underground, crazy theater. It really helped with his directing. It was such a contained space and the lighting is such a part of it. And even in the book, and even in Hellbound Heart, you have when Frank is working on uh, La Marchand's box, 
you have like there's the tolling of the bells and he knew precisely how to take that from the page into the film and so the first one is phenomenal the second one they should have had a hundred million dollars more i still love the second one like crazy the third one there's such interesting ideas but you start moving away and then the fourth one they kind of come back it's still peter atkins atkins is still working with barker and if you've read atkins's actual original screenplay for bloodline it's very close there are a lot of scenes that are the same but the stuff that's missing is very telling and the stuff they added not all of it's bad putting the bookends with the interrogation of the descendant of Lamarchan kind of helps if you're not really steeped in the mythology mm-hmm. but it just it's the last one before barker's like nope i'm out dimension you do whatever you want i i still remember when five came out I went to a screening and the screenwriter and director both were like, yeah, Clive signed off. And I published that. I was a reporter at the time, like Bangorian stuff. And I wrote (laughs) that. Clive called me like the next day. And he's like, I did not. I did not sign. I do not like. And he was like, I don't know how much I can say on the record, but he went on the record to say, no, he did not sign off on the movie. And he was finished. Mm. So. So back then when he called, was it just like a wire phone or did you have one of those cool flip phones at the time? I'm trying to think I probably had one of those ones from the early like cancer stuff when they started doing the little <laughs> meme where it looked like the x-ray of the, right. of the little Motorola against your head. I bet it looked like that. So. I don't know, Mark, just looking at you in the nineties, <laughs> I feel like you probably were that guy who had like a phone with a tongue that was like from Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. part one as a gag phone that you would use. Cause like we had like hamburger phones and all those novelty Gar- stuff. I had a Garfield phone. Those things shout, are great. Shout out Garfield. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, Mark, I'd love to get more into it, but first, like it's been over a year. Like, what have you been up to, man? Like, is there been anything you've been working on with, on your side with any writing? Um, have you been watching books. any scary movies lately? For this um, October? Well, the hell, the new Hellraiser. Um, <laughs> trying to think what else was good. I've seen a lot of crap, but I guess I've read a lot of good horror like authors like Haley Piper, who I really love, and Latina Castro. Oh, and there was a new take on Dr. Moreau that the woman who wrote Mexican Gothic, um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, wrote. And it was just, it reconceived Dr. Moreau in Mexico um, during the revolution. It was like, in the, and it was fascinating because the hybrid beasts are so secondary to what Moreau is attempting to do, to what kind of civilization he's trying to create. And it almost felt influenced by that movie, the Charles Lawton version, Island Mm -hmm. of Lost Souls, more than the H.G. Wells novel and really doing an adaptation of where the Panther Lady character might have come into the story, which is much more featured in Island of of Lost Souls because in the original book, she's in the end and she's gone. And it was really, she's such an interesting author anyway. And that was one of the best, uh, I guess, pseudo, it wasn't really scary, but there, I mean, it's being sold as a horror novel, but it was, uh, it was really good. So I've been reading a ton of good horror. So that's awesome. Uh, do you have, I, I think, I don't, I don't think I asked last year, but do you have any like 
rituals <laughs> or like you know certain things that you do during the October season like you see people post 31 days of horror challenge or usually it's a fa- you know the ABC family movies mostly or they'll go try and see certain screenings for me it's been trying to see more red repertoire screenings at oh, yeah. the the theaters here in Chicago so that's been like kind what? of my thing um so we had the like I before recording I talked about um where I went to go see uh, some movies at the the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. So I saw Creep Show, which was um, a whole Stephen King marathon hosted by the, the the Losers Club. But the big one for me was I was excited for is I purchased a double feature ticket um, at the Music Box, and same thing, same double bill they did in nineteen sixty six, and the first U.S. screening was in Chicago. I got to see uh, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and oh, Plague wow. of the Zombies from sixty six, and it was awesome. That would be fun to see. Yeah, that's cool. So that was that. I mean, Plague of the was my favorite Hammer horror, and uh, the and then that same that was on a Wednesday, and that same week Monday I watched uh, Mask of the Red Death for the first time in theaters, and that was oh. a new 4K 35 millimeter put like it was like a Frankenstein put together through Joe Dante and another filmmaker, and it was it was an amazing amazing time. It was a packed theater, um, so that's what I've been trying to do. Um, How do people take Vention? Like people, I mean. I grew up on Vincent Price, so I like adore Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Modern audiences, well, how do they respond to oh, a Mask of the Red Death? Okay. They loved it. I mean, Vincent Price, he just captures a screen. Every time his one-liners, people cracking up, or you could hear people in the crowd go, ooh, you know? And then with Prince yeah. of Dracula, Prince of Darkness, I mean, the dialogue is notoriously, you know, so bad that Christopher Lee said he wasn't going to say a word in the whole movie. Um, but the uh, the audiences were great for it, um, yeah. and it was a lot. It was like a lot of older people. It was fair. I'm only 26, and there was people my age and a lot younger watching them and talk. Excuse me, and like talking about before screening, um, their favorite Hammer movies and the Universal movies. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And they also did like pre-show um, like trailers, and they did like old cartoons and stuff before the yeah. showing. So that's been like my big thing this uh, Halloween. Besides watching Rob Zombie's The Monsters, of course. Yeah, I got about ten minutes into that. Oh no, Mark! Uh, I, I know. I feel I'm a bad patriot. I mean, oh. I, I I'll watch the rest of it. I just I, I just wanted to say, and then probably switch again. I, I I do the same thing with Hammer. I get it's just not Hammer. I do Amicus and uh, Hammer. But it's not Halloween for me unless I guess I watch The Devil Rides Out every mm. October. But because my sister and I used to watch it back to Stephen King, we I watch Silver Bullet every October. Ooh, nice. And I know that it's not beloved, but if you see it as a child, like everybody else has Goonies or whatever. Yeah. I have and people uh, and Monster Squad. For me, my childhood movie is Silver Bullet. And I mean, every time I watch it where you see like the werewolf arm with the bat, like beating people. And I'm just like, I get that people have a, a negative reaction to this film. To me, I think it's like the greatest. I I love the movie. I love every beat of that film. So Silver Bullet mm-hmm. is slowly becoming one of my favorite Stephen King movies. Like I thought it was so Misery. Great. And but I'm like, I, I, I mean, Silver Bullet's coming up there. Um, it's very Everett McGill. You don't. Stephen King characters sometimes are hard to nail. That's what's Hearts in Atlantis is beloved by nobody. But the first half of that, like everybody really nails how to act a Stephen King character 
torn straight from the books. That kind of Norman Rockwell thing that King has going on. And Silver Bullet with the sister's voiceover and with just the pain that Everett McGill has. Just like, I don't want to be a werewolf. So we're going to see that as a church full of like organ playing werewolves. But the just the pro, the the horror of having a priest having the curse like that's Stephen King that's fantastic that's very American that's very Norman Rockwell that's very Americana in its own way because it's very New England Christian so it's mm-hmm. I don't know it Silver Bullet works for me that's that's crazy I never would have thought that that somebody else you know besides like my inner circle would be like <laughs> Silver Bullet's great and I'm like yeah Silver oh Bullet's wait really? that's awesome. I know you're supposed to say like other like ah oh, yes stand by me. I'm like nah man, Super Bowl, Super Bowl is so much better. Again, yeah. the same reason why this podcast started. Like, imagine it, Mark, if I had you on and I said, let's just talk about the first Hellraiser for an hour and a half. It's like, yes, that would be an awesome yeah. conversation, but we'd be saying the same thing. So we're talking about Hellraiser Four Bloodline, Bloodline, which that's a first watch for me. And before we even talk about that, we got to talk about the man, um, Clive Barker. Um, we talked about in the recording. You know, I'm really into like Todd McFarlane and like his style and stuff. But like, obviously I knew in the nineties, that was definitely a growing trend. Um, whether it's like, you know, you know, then you think about like David Cronenberg with the body horror in the eighties as well, going into the nineties, um, Hellraiser kind of feels like that, but it's not the same as body horror. It's more or less like just very gruesome, pushing a hard R violence and oddly sexualizing it in some sort of grotesque way. I, I, I don't know. Hellraiser is a horny movie, the first yeah. one, but I still love it. Um, because it's that and then some, you know what I mean? Well, his book, it's funny because he very late published his plays. He published two volumes of the plays, the dog company, which Doug Bradley was in. Mm-hmm. Um, he published his plays. And if you read the plays, they are, un- some of them are unproducible. Like there's one about Goya where the stage explodes and it's amazing. And it's a retelling of Frankenstein and it's wild. And then there's one that was a cast of 30. And it was called The History of the Devil. And the devil's on trial. And I actually, I, I, I directed it in Texas. And it turns out we were the first idiots to ever do it in Texas. So Texas, Clyde Barker, History of the Devil. But it was just <laughs> this play that was the devil on trial for all the sins he committed. But it turns out that the devil is like, no, I was justified in all of these things. I'm a liar. I'm a trickster. I have a role on earth. You should be prosecuting God. Incredible play. And so much of the carnality of those plays then seeped into the books of blood because the short stories, like the ones that became Candyman, like Yattering and Jack, like like In the Hills, the Cities, just there's so much uneasiness with the body and thinking oh my body couldn't do this and then it does and that just disquietedness i mean the books of blood you open them up and they're red i mean that's the thing that starts all the books it's it's all gruesome but it's not about the bodies of others it's the body yourself and so hellraiser when he finally made the hellraiser movie and it just becomes about piecing together this thing that's been chopped apart it's fascinating and it's kind of beautiful. And yeah, as you say, it's a very horny movie, but Barker's work is very sexual. So 
I, f- I feel like, yeah, when you talk even like, you, you know, Doug Bradley and Pinhead, the character, I always knew what Pin- who Pinhead was. For a long time, I never watched his movies because just the co- the title, Hellraiser, is just more than enough yeah. to be f- freaky. And um, I just never got around to it until like three years ago until I finally watched it. And like my eyes blew up because it was insane what I was seeing on screen. But it's weird how Pin- Pinhead is just... He fits the bill of like every like iconic 80s monster, but like he's completely different and his movies are insanely different as well cuz he's in it but he's not in it very much. And it's yeah. not even just about him, it's about those Cenobites. It's just all of them like the the clatterer, you know, the the the, the very, you know, butterball and butterball. Yeah. It's you know, I make a joke it's like Chatterer. that's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like and plus whatever the hell that thing was that was chasing um Kirsty in the first movie. The engineer well. Yeah, the engineer, yeah. which is like, not a Cenobite, which is not a Cenobite. So no, it's true, and it's like those characters. I don't know. Like when I first watched this, I was like, I had no idea what these Cenobites were, but like yeah. I like them so much that I don't care if I don't know much about them. Um, and I can't think of like other like horror franchises where it's like that because like I mean Friday the Thirteenth explain who Jason is, and that's fine. Yeah. Explain who uh, who Freddy is. You know what Michael's like. Um, but you never really kind of get that until like yeah. the sequels, which I think is awesome that it starts building this, uh, like this, like you talked about when we were before recording, um, like about like, in like emails, you were saying like the mythos and like the backstories, all this stuff. It's like, I had no idea that's what they were actually going to do. And like up until the third one, they give you little breadcrumbs of like who the pinhead character is. I think that's so cool. And then to do that in like the late eighties and also supply the awesome, practical effects that look straight out of the thing um and then some and like these transformation scenes it's like how do you even put that crap on screen like how do you like i mean the practical effect it wasn't tom zavidi that was doing this so you know the people who were doing it were incredibly talented well it's funny because so many of the american ones are quasi revenge stories Mm -hmm. friday 13th is a revenge story um, Nightmare on Elm Street, absolutely. Revenge story. Freddy comes back, get the kids, the people who burned them alive. Mm-hmm. So many of them are this. The Cenobites are there to bring pleasure through unending pain. And it mm-hmm. amuses them, but it's their job. And they are beholden only to Leviathan. And as when Barker wrote Scarlet Gospels, which is the ultimately huge epic sequel to Hellbound Heart. There's a war in hell that's hinted at in Hellraiser 4 Bloodline where you get that Pinhead likes the new way, that hell has changed. It's not immoral. It's not Lucifer's hell anymore. It's mm-hmm. we're dedicated to sex and pain and we take it seriously. Yeah. And I mean, that's insane. How do you just say, you know what we should do? We should turn that into a movie. It was rated X. I mean, they couldn't even release the stupid thing. But... <laughs> People are still watching it like decades later and, you know, remaking it for streaming services. Mm-hmm. So, but <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's just American horror was very normal in compared the franchises. Halloween, same thing. It's he comes back. Ultimately, they kind of solve it out that it's some kind of revenge thing. But it's mm-hmm. just very this happens and this happens. Hellraiser was just like, if you have the skills to unlock a puzzle box that was made for a french aristocrat guess what demons will come with chains 
to grant you sexual pleasure. That's not Leprechaun. That's insane. So <laughs> and I think that's why it's held on. I mean, yeah, it, it, I only, the only sort of like, sort of like masochist sort of thing I can like relate this to is maybe Hooper's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like it doesn't explain why they kill the way they yeah. do. It's just like, they just are insane and take joy in that type of thing. But even then it's like Hellraiser just leaps and bounds above what it was. And it came out in 80, 88, the yeah. first one, or was that 86? The first one, 87, made in 86, came out in America in 87. Yeah. There you go. And yeah, you think that's the late 80s, you know what I mean? Like, all the good stuff up to that point was probably released in the early half of the decade. And, it, I mean, do you remember what it was like when Hellraiser was coming out? Or even in the 90s, like, what the... What was the... Like, what were I they talking too, about in Fangoria about, like, Hellraiser back in the day then, I guess? Well, it was funny because Barker was such a known quantity um, because the, the first novels, like, Weaverold came out and was huge stuff the early novels of his books of blood and the early novels were big and so somebody t and they had made one movie rawhead rex and it was oh. fine um <laughs> yeah and but it wasn't barker was itching to direct and it was kind of that idea of okay it happened it didn't happen at a major studio but it was give him a shot and then the thing because like evil dead it was considered more notorious before people had even seen it because it was X-rated, because it was seen as being so much worse than anything else. I mm -hmm. I was too young for Hellraiser, but I remember very specifically opening the newspaper to go to the funny pages <laughs> when and there was like an ad for Hellraiser 2. And it was like, kids not allowed never see this this is too awful for anything i'm like okay this i i have to see it was the perfect sales thing for it and then when hellraiser 3 came out i think i saw it on home video but i went to they did a tour it was so big they did a music tour of the soundtrack <laughs> that came to houston and i think it was like cam fdm and like all these weird bands um played like a dumpy club and it was like the Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth tour. And it probably made more money than the movie. So it's just, so by then, I was finally old enough to, I saw Hellraiser 4 in the theater. And I think that's the only time I've ever seen an Alan, Alan Smithy film in a theater. And I think that's the last time an Alan Smithy film got a major release. So I don't think any other, there's been like 20 since then. But it takes a lot for the guild to release a movie as Alan Smithy. And I think that was one, I think that was the last major release where a director was allowed to take their name off because I think Supernova came out. Everybody took their name off that. I forget who they credit on Supernova, but I don't think it's Alan Smithy. So, mm. and wow, yeah, when I walked in there, I was like, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> It was probably like a midnight premiere too, and like everyone like is all like ready to go. That, nope. ah, that would I was awesome. the only one in the theater. Me and my friend Phil, we we're like it. <laughs> Nobody cared. Nobody cared about a razor blood. Oh, so, that's I mean that's crazy. I think you know compared to the three, the leap from three to four. I think 
there's a better leap if that makes yeah. sense i think three's all right i appreciate that there's a band like a band that's like centered around some of the story because it's like any like horror movie that has a band and a longer sequence like drill killer killer in 79 yeah. howling 2 you know you could say trick or treat um i could say singles <laughs> not a horror movie but yeah you know uh for I some when yeah. i love when horror movies do that though when they put like a band a little bit into the movie it, it kind of makes it a little more fun yeah it's funny because i was thinking a lot about hell on earth as i was watching the new one the bruckner hellraiser that just came out mm. because if you remember in three the club owner has to feed a certain number of souls kind yep. of trapped in the pillar of souls mm-hmm. and you have to feed a certain number of souls to the thing to free pinhead mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. with the bruckner sorry spoilers but there's a very specific series of configurations. The The configurations of the LaMarchand's box have always kind of been mysterious and they mm-hmm. really spell them out. You go from this config, Leviathan configuration, Lament configuration. And if you do that, adding blood each time, you, different victims like a slasher film add up to every time you kill somebody and their blood enters LaMarchand's box, it moves to a new configuration because the ultimate configuration is to open a pathway to hell, which is from the old stories. But in this, it really is. They really at, they take the pillar of souls plot from hell on earth and put it as well. That's also how you open Lamar Sharn's box. And I was like, Oh, I always just thought it was like some guy was horny enough that he's going to work on that thing for a year to finally <laughs> open the box and get the right configuration. The Cenobites are like, what? Finally. Oh my God. The world's horniest man. Hellraiser. And, but now it's like, no, no, kill six people. You will move through the configurations and the Cenobites show up. I'm like, ah, what about the world's horniest man that you abandoned the, the, the mythology. So I, I wonder know. Yeah, I wonder if they kind of got rid of that eventually. I mean, I, I haven't read the Clive Barker books, but I know Clive Barker was very hands-on with Hellraiser for a while up until that fourth movie. Yeah. And, you know, with that, he didn't direct the second movie. I don't know how much work he actually did on that second one on Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. A lot. But, but Tony Randall did a pretty darn good job. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I see him in is Ticks, you know, which also has... Uh, 4k vinegar syndrome release so if anybody from vinegar syndrome is listening to that please send uh send a copy over my way uh <laughs> but uh um, ticks yeah. <laughs> right remember bug horror remember that was such a trend and yeah. then eight-legged freaks kind of killed it uh see that's an that's an undervalued early 80s like with barker there's a book called slugs by sean oh. hudson that was made mm-hmm. to not a great movie but yep. still the book is one of the greatest killer bug nonsense like it's in and it's gory and bloody and insane and holds up beautiful sean hudson very underrated early 80s uk splatter guy so <laughs> in that in the in the bug wave that came after the rat wave oh so. gosh yeah and then we had like a whole like reptile wave where you had like giant boa versus mega python or whatever type movies that came out and cgi the hell out of those yeah i love how sub horror genres have like trends in that way 
uh, and I watched all of them as a as oh, a weird too. you know early two thousands kid growing up on at Family Video basically. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Sci Fi Channel Saturday nights mm-hmm. every Saturday night. All they needed was a one zero rating to justify the budgets. The budgets were like a million dollars. Like all we want is a one zero for Sci Fi Channel. That meant like five people showed up. If they did, they're like success for Sci Fi. And they just it was always like Titana Boa Komoda Dragon like yep. all of them. And there's some great movies in there. There's some awful movies in there, but there's some great underrated, great Z grade monster crap in there. So I need Shudder uh, to do like a month long, like early two thousands, night late nineties, oh like straight to sci fi yeah. channel. Could you imagine that? I, I'd watch. I'd watch the whole thing. It would be like when Turner Classic Movies is doing like a Fred Astarathon. Shudder's doing like a garbage early aught sci fi originalathon. I'm like. Fred Astaire, yay, ghost story, and just watch the other. That would be amazing. (laughs) There you go. We have the same energy, Mark. That's why I love that. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, we talk about, like, you know, he wasn't – I don't know how – you said he had a lot of presence um, or work done on that second movie. Um, I I mean, I don't know. It seems like he was very influential. Like, we talked about last time you were on, you know, Sam Raimi, like, he's your guy and stuff like that. You know, Sam Raimi and Evil Dead have some oddly similarities to that Hellbound, you know, at least with the graphic and the gore. But I wonder if that's because of David Cronenberg more, maybe from the early 80s that was like ushering that in. Or is just like, did Clive Barker, when he when he put out Hellraiser, was like it just like this wave of like aspiring filmmakers and writers being like, wow, look at that. We can make money off of that. And I have ideas. So let's go do that. And they also I mean, when Hellraiser came out, there's that double edged sword of. We're going to push the envelope, which means we might get banned as a video nasty from home video release in certain places. Home videos, mom and pop video stores in America, Blockbuster, could not carry X-rated films. But if you make a movie that's so notorious like that, like an Evil Dead or like a Hellraiser, people are going to fight to see the thing. So... There's that, yeah, we're not going to get in theaters. Yeah, we're not going to get in Blockbuster. But yeah, we are going to get millions of people to seek out Hellraiser because it's exactly what Barker wanted to do on a pretty low budget. Yeah. I wonder if that's like what we see now with movies. Like you see a lot of movies like, oh, you see it all the time, Megorio or like, you know, Dead of Nerds, whatever, all these websites. So-and-so highly anticipated movie is now being reported to be a pg-13 movie and then you see all this like oh my gosh it's like it's ruining the thing and then everyone says why can't everything be rated r but i wonder if because the rated r label now is now going to be for that reason like you said it might make us less accessible but if we can get enough of a following it will you know the returns will come in the long run i wonder if we're kind of doing that now well, that's part of the problem. There is no aftermarket anymore with no blockbuster, no home video market. Home video is so niche at this point. You used to be able to rely on, oh, we'll sell some to blockbuster. And by selling some to blockbuster, that's even if it's one copy, that's 3,000 stores. And if you go, if you're number one at the box office, they buy, they used to buy 100. So that was such a huge part of the financial pie for any movie. Now that there's no aftermarket, and streaming services pay nothing. It's very PG-13 horror is maybe we'll get enough people in theaters. And now with COVID, you never know. But it just, it's really hard to make 
profits. You make your money back, but it's really hard for people to make profits on horror films anymore. And then you do something so original, like like a malignant or something that's just yeah. out there. The people are like, you have to see this. I'm not telling you you're going to love it. <laughs> I'm not telling you you're going to hate it. What I'm saying is you got to see it. And so everybody saw Malignant and it made a lot of money. So what you're saying is probably true. If you make something so outre, you make something so bananas that you have to engage with the film, maybe that's success in this day and age. So where are you at, Mark? In the in the the Twitter discourse for the last year, where do you stand on the Malignant argument? Oh, I think it's great. It, but I <laughs> but I love I like I still like identity. I mean, I love when it's like, oh my god, they're all in his brain and they're in a motel and it's all fake. I'm like from the director of Jack Frost. I'm like, this is amazing to me. This is I, I love that I just I will never not be a B movie guy. And it very malignant was such a B-movie twist movie. Like, they're not going to do this. They did it. And you're just like, great. I love when people have the, what, the chutzpah to do something absurd. So I, I thought Malignant was great. Okay, okay. I you hear that, that everyone. Mark Water, he's a he's a he's a malignant guy. Ma oh, it's malignant. Great. <laughs> uh that's good. You're not? You're I, like, I, nah, no way. Okay, so they call it a Jalo and all these other things. You hear all about this <laughs> stuff. But for me, it's just like the odd music placement. Like it's not it's James Wan. You know, I know James Wan yeah. likes to have a good time. I remember I love his X Files episodes. Yeah. Um when he was those were always really good ones. Um, and he seems like he made a lot of his money with the big box stuff and stuff. So he got to just do malignant. And, uh, I love the twist and I love the third act, but like, it felt like such a chore to get to that point. And I think with the pacing and like the odd, yeah. like human elements of it, but you know what? The art house horror pacing. Exactly. That's, that's killing some people now. Yeah. Is it, is it the a two four effect? I think is what I like to call it. I will never say that aloud, but it's absolutely the a two four effect. But it's fine. I mean, it's there's so much horror being made mm -hmm. that if you don't like that, there's something else right here. I mean, it just yeah, pretty I get much. That, I mean, it just there's so much stuff. So mm -hmm. and the only the only bad thing, and this is actually uh, to bring it back to Hellraiser Bloodline, mm -hmm. the one thing that I don't that's kind of a bummer in horror right now in horror films is you see movies that you're like, wow, the best version of this movie would be a $20 million New Line movie or something. Like to really realize what this filmmaker is going for. And then they end up having to make it for 1.8 somewhere. And so you can see the ideas. You can see, and I'm not going to mention any names because that's rude, but you can see what an interesting premise and what the filmmaker really wanted to accomplish but they're just not able to get there because it's such a crapshoot to make that money back now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I and and you talk about like there's not money in the aftermarket. If like directors or producers want to put that stuff out, they basically have to put it in the home media section. Like you see, like yeah. that extended editions, directors cuts, um, which you know then boutique labels will eat that up right and then put out like a, a second release like remember when exorcist came out the, the version you've never seen before but they just put in the edited out like spider walk scene uh and the ending is a casablanca ending um 
and then and, you get oh, the... and they added the little special effects of like you suddenly see oh, yeah. the face and you're like uh-huh. no i i mean i get it but no so yeah and it, it, it's I mean, effective I don't know. on its own yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've been around and you've seen it so much now, especially with independent films, too. It's like, I don't know where it's, it almost becomes like a configuring the little box in Hellraiser, trying to figure out which version of movies to watch, especially in horror movies. Like, do you watch a director's cut? Do you watch, like, the theatrical cut? Like, how do you even navigate that anymore? It's like, I always forget which version of Alien to watch sometimes. But yeah. then it's like, I trust Ridley Scott and his, like, you know, reproduction of his old movies. But then you get things like Exorcist 3, where you, like, you can't figure out they're completely yeah. different movies. And uh, yeah, it's, it gets almost confusing to figure out. And I wonder if it's because the movies were supposed to be completely different. And that's the movie we were supposed to get. But the, you know, the the studios get in the way and kind of say, no, we don't want that. Or I don't like that. You, know, you see with Warner brothers all the time now, like changing movies completely. Yeah. And I wonder if that was such a thing in the late eighties, early nineties, up to the two thousands, even. Well, that's what how razor bloodline is. An ex- is a perfect example of that where Peter Atkins, who is a collaborator of Barker's wrote this script and three part is almost like three distinct chapters of you're going to do a story that's in the past about the invention of Lamarchand's box. You're going to do one in the center that's contemporary with Lamarchand's descendant as an architect. And then the futuristic one where they build a satellite. And, but in the, in the actual script, it was like a meteor and they built a sun around it and there's no happy ending in the old script. And Atkins did it very much with the blessing of Barker, like really expanded out, which should have been a, I guess in those dollars, like a 20, $30 million movie um, to really realize the stuff. And the, in the Lamarchand's box, the early, the French sequence mm-hmm. was longer. And Atkins, who's also the big force behind the Wishmaster franchise mm. has done so much. Like I saw, there was a musical version of Wishmaster, Jen, the musical. And he did this in like one church 20 years ago and he was in it. Atkins was in it playing a clown and he sang songs. I was there. It was great. <laughs> it has never been done since. But it, it a lot of the Commedia dell'arte like kind of stuff that he, that was taken out by the Weinsteins from Hellraiser Bloodline is all over the script. There was all these commentary on of these kind of deme- demonic kind of chorus of what Lamarchand was doing. There was so much more in the French plotline in Hellraiser Bloodline that really defined how hell was evolving. The, the hell that Angelique was a princess of hell who's born into it in the first chapter has been having this lusty carnal existence for 200 years when she meets the hell priest, when she meets Pinhead and he's like, and in the original script, he's like, hell has changed. Things have changed. There is a new order. And all of that's gone because Dimension was like, ah, we don't need any of that. Nobody cares about that crap. And they just focused on Pinhead as Boogeyman, and they kept yep. bringing him in earlier. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that you can tell about what Dimension didn't and understand about the Hellraiser franchise based on the cuts to Hellraiser Bloodline. And absolutely, it makes sense that the director took his name off of it and was like, 
I just don't feel I mean, I've seen directors keep their name on things for much less for stuff that they had nothing. <laughs> I've seen movies that you're like, you didn't make any of that, but there's the director. This guy was like, I don't feel comfortable. This is not what I signed on to do. So he took his name off and it's, you know, he could have kept it on. I, I don't, it was mm. clearly his decision, but it was a bridge too far. And Barker did kind of walk away. And then Hellraiser, after Hellraiser Bloodline was a disaster financially, Inferno and all the sequels become, as we were talking before we started recording, very low budget movies. And in a couple of cases, scripts that were repurposed to be Hellraiser movies. And it almost feels like Dimension was just keeping the license. There's a reason in the new Hellraiser, and this might be a little too inside baseball, but when you see Mark Toberoff's name in the credits of a movie, like he is on the new Hellraiser, he's a lawyer. And when there's disputed rights on things, he goes after the rights. He's been working on the uh, Jack Kirby estate stuff. He, there, wow. If you just go on IMDb and you look at Mark Toberoff, you'll see all these disputed stuff. And he basically will help you get the rights back if he then is a producer and gets like 30%. Like, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm shocked he's not part of the Friday the 13th case. But I was about to he, say, he, he belongs to be in there. He belongs. He, he probably went after it. But Toberoff is on a lot of these movies with disputed um rights issues and it just maybe that means going forward there will no longer be hellraiser movies that are just oh we have to put one out this year otherwise we lose the rights hmm. i mean dimension was a weird place yeah i well this backpedal just a little bit because those are really cool things but it's like yeah why don't you get him to freaking visit the guy who owns the rights of the dawn of the dead from 78 and get a decent u.s release of that movie right <laughs> I'll bet, uh, I, honestly, I'll bet he's on it. it I, you never, when you're reading Variety and you suddenly see something, you're like, wow, I thought that would, and then you go down, you're like, Mark Toberoff producing. Yeah, like, ah, he's, he's been on yeah. this for three years. So yeah, yeah, we'll see if we'll ever get that Friday the 13th. Um, yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah, a Dimension, you know, growing up, I remember the Dimension logo, the Dimension like opening for movies and stuff like that. Yeah. And you talk about the way it was, you know, I can't even remember. Was it Miramax or was it Dimension that was even working on Wes Craven's um, screen movies in the nineties? I always get those yeah. two. I get those two confused for some reason. Um, and I wonder. Well, it's the same company. It's just the genre label of Miramax. So. No kidding. Yeah, it's the Weinstein brothers, um, Harvey and Bob yeah. Weinstein. Bob ran Dimension. Harvey ran Big Miramax, and Bob oversaw theatrical stuff like the faculty and then straight to video stuff like the children of the corn sequels and just that endless parade of when they f got their first deal they made this huge overarching arching deal again this might be boring as shit but they yeah. made this huge overarching deal with blockbuster to release x amount of movies per month and blockbuster held shelf space for movies that miramax or dimension would release per month and that could be acquisitions from film festivals. That could be Dimension um, straight-to-video action movies. That could be Dimension straight-to-video horror films. They had a pipeline, and they had to fill it. And Dimension just kept churning out movies. And Miramax kept acquiring movies. There was, at one point, 
they had something like 50 movies backlogged that they couldn't even release. So Blockbuster Video was getting movies that might have been a can four or five years earlier. And it's just because they were so backlogged that Miramax would be like, okay, finally, this movie can come up. And Dimension was doing endless and i mean artisan was in that business with like what leprechaun and sometimes they come back for more yeah that that model of we have an output deal with blockbuster we have tv deals with syndication and we have foreign rights um sold into european television you could make a movie so and that was and you could make it in bulk so Uh that was dimensions deal for a very long time Makes sense. That's why they'd open up a site. I think it was like a subgroup of Dimension where they called it Dimension Extreme. And it was just, I think, straight oh, really? to DVD. Because like, even like one of the Hellraiser movies was slapped with the label Dimension's Extreme. Or it was like Dimension Midnight or something like right. that. And then you it's got one of those like, labels those... that comes up and go like Rogue. You still yeah. see like, oh yeah, Rogue. Back when mm-hmm. Focus had a label. It was there yep. for like six months. And <laughs> I think one of the Edgar Wright movie, I, Shaun of the Dead might be Rogue. Yeah. Or Hoffa's might be Rogue. It was one of those genre labels that was there and gone. Yeah, it's like it's so. like a spooky intro, and it's like, well, this movie's gonna be fucking awesome. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, I remember Screen that. Screen gems in the age of underworld. <laughs> yeah, like, and then they're gone. Yeah, I, so. I mean, when you were working in the '90s and stuff like that, I had to keep you busy. Like, you know, look, watching these movies, or even just as a movie fan, like you had to have loved like the output that the the studios were putting out. I would right? love to say no, no, it was terrible. I'm like, nah, I watched every single like Dimension could put anything out. I loved watching Dimension movies. It was just you could any number of Children of the Corn movies. I was going to watch that Children of the Corn movie. So it's just, <laughs> yeah, you just. I just, it didn't matter what it was. I love it. So to the core Genesis. Gotta love that one. And there's, have you seen the new one? I haven't. I haven't. The Kurt Wimmer one? Uh, No. I just remember Dimensions putting those movie four packs on Blu-rays constantly. That was, that was weird when they started real, because then you could tell the market was kind of shifting a little bit when Mm -hmm. they just started doing those like 10 movies on one DVD. And you're like, ah, we're no longer (laughs) selling to Walt, to Blockbuster were selling to Walmart in caps. So mm. it changed the way DVDs were sold because you had such smaller um, shelf space at Walmart. Mm. You have like a row and an in cap. So you better pour everything into one because you don't have the whole store like Blockbuster. So you have those little packs for truck stops and for uh, Walmart and all the places where you don't have much shelf space. Yeah. So. And then you da- then New Line Cinema did the four film favorites like trying to copy dimensions oh, four packs that. yeah that's how they release all those friday or nightmare on elm street movies they 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 got the first four the good ones in a dvd pack yeah. and then you had to buy the other you know crappy ones on the other four movie pack <laughs> but uh that might be slandering uh dream child a little too much though so uh but yeah no, that's... I, as a friday the 13th person slander away <laughs> I, I got in so many fights on the elementary school playground being like, I love Jason. Everybody's like, you're an idiot. We love Freddy. And you're just like, really? <laughs> really? Everybody's a Freddy fan. I was the only Jason fan I knew. So. I think when I was younger, I've always, I'll always be a Freddy kid. But like the older I'm getting, I'm starting to become a Jason guy. Yeah. Like I really am. Come like, to the just... dark side. Yeah. The like <laughs> hand of God. The unmotivated. The whole world is the, my mother's killer. So right. You just gotta kill the world. <laughs> Freddie's like, no, no. I have a specific kill list, mm-hmm. and it has to be the bloodline of the people that burned me alive. And you're like, okay. And I'm gonna do crazier. 
lines and crazier gags. Yeah. Jason's like, nope, just here to kill you. Like, ah, yeah. That's okay. probably why they're probably taking so damn long to do Nightmare on Elm Street movies because they're trying to think of some intricate way of bringing Freddy back to haunt Elm Street again is what might th- be. Or, I mean, I haven't watched the the remake from 2000 and I think 11 is when it came out. It couldn't yeah. have been. I haven't watched it since it first came out. It couldn't have been that bad where we just haven't got a Blu-ray yeah. release or a new movie, right? Well, it's funny because what they almost did when they almost said... Freddie wasn't a child molester. He was wrongfully burned alive. When it looked like that was going to be the movie, I was like, holy shit. And they're like, no, no, he was a child molester. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah. But when it looked like they were going to change the mythology that much, I was kind of on board. I was kind of like, that's really strange. Mm-hmm. It's not like Freddy versus Jason, where Jason's afraid of water. And you're like, ah, I don't buy that. Yeah. It was such a weird way to reinvent Nightmare on Elm Street. I was like, why not? So. Yeah, my latest take after Rob Zombie's Monsters is I need Richard Brake to be cast as yeah. Freddy Krueger, and I need him to be uh-huh. that. I That's my latest take. Anyway, back to iconic, you know, <laughs> I, yeah, Rob Zombie kind of goes into that whole like late 90s, early 2000s type of directors and like creatives like McFarlane and Barker and um, you get like those Silent Hill movies. You get Rob Zombie, you can throw into that mix. Um, it's just a weird, weird time. And then you get like, you throw a blade in there too. Definitely kind of yeah. feels like that in some ways too. Or well, it's just like colors. His music mm-hmm. videos were colorful and the horror was all dark and like, like, it was just, there was so much unlit. And then he comes and brings this like psychedelic feel into his music videos. And you're like, wow, no one's doing that version of, you know, horror just with the videos mm-hmm. and then when he starts making the movies and they're all textured and they're all shot like late 70s films mm-hmm. it's like that's really interesting i still think his halloween 2 is just the most underrated halloween film in the whole franchise oh, so Mark. i, I love the first one no but halloween rob zombies halloween 2 full-on white horse nightmare shit i'm like yes halloween 2. that's what it I'm, makes that, so hey. much sense it's yes, so weird. It's like weird. He tricked the studios into doing an art house film. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it's awesome. And it That's works. Like such a... And it's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's horrifically brutal. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, go back and rewatch our episode that we talked about with Halloween 2 from Rob Zombie. I think you'd really like that then. Um, and then when we talk about Hellraiser 4 Bloodline, we talked about it a little bit. It kind of goes back. It's Well, it starts in the future, first off. It's in 2065, 2165 yeah. or something crazy. And it's spaceships and everything. The CGI is actually not that bad. But I think some people right off the bat, when they talk, think about Hellraiser 4, they're like, oh, it's this horror franchise that has to go into space because right. so many other horror franchises up to this point had. But it's actually, from a story standpoint, makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of cool to see. Um, and then you get like a ripoff Terminator in, in a little bit of that opening too. <laughs> um, but like for the fourth movie, I mean, you think about, you know, Friday the 13th part four nightmare four Halloween four. I mean, it's, it's, it holds up with the fours of the horror franchises. In my opinion, I, it, you know, I'll talk about the story a little bit more in a little bit, but just right off the bat, I would say when you think about iconic fours in horror movies, I think Hellraiser is definitely worthy of talking about. Well, it's go so much into like the actual creation of the box is referenced in Hellbound heart. It's in that they talk about it yeah. being, um built like 
built by a, a French toy maker for a French aristocrat. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, but it's kind of written off in a paragraph and you get the idea that, oh, the aristocrat must be a Marquis de Sade or Gilles Rai, the, the werewolf guy who was a child murderer, mm -hmm. was definitely based on one of those really strange, actual real life French aristocrats from the era who was obsessed with magic and was obsessed with perverting Christianity. The way de Sade, actually, de Sade is both misunderstood and completely understood. He was nuts, but so much was a reaction to his time and his position. And so he's actually a really interesting person. So making Le Marchand create a box for essentially somebody who is just trying to push sadism and pleasure as far as he can mm -hmm. was fascinating. And you don't get that in the films until the fourth one. And it's weird to see Le Marchand's box being created only 200 years before the present day, because in the books, the engineer is seen as like a million years old and is the first person to open the gateways to hell. So there's a much bigger history, but the idea at least finally explaining how somebody would create a lacquered box that could open a gateway to hell was really interesting. And it just, so there was still stuff to mine when you're doing Bloodline. There's still unexplored aspects from the original story that make it into Hellraiser Bloodline. And again, that's why I wanted to talk about this one because that ends, that, has, that stops after part four. And it feels that there are a lot of loose ends in four that could that you could keep exploring that you could have gone into a much more clive barker type hellraiser five and that just wasn't in the cards there's right. still so much there in the book yeah there's so much lore um just in that whole you know 17th century um france you know setting there you know we see the toy maker and they call him toy maker throughout most of the movie um you know tinkering with this thing and um then you get a young Adam Scott in this movie from yeah. Parks and Rec as well. Um, you get an awesome scene with Angelique, who is the one of the film's antagonists as well. Um, which I guess she's the first victim um, to the box, and you see what happens to her. And she also lives as well um, after that. Well, occurs. the demon Angelique, the princess of hell, then Im Im is now inside the body of the peasant mm -hmm. they sacrificed to functionally leviathan right. so it's she's now put her body is possessed by the princess so and that is so dark and so insane to even think about and then they put that in and put it in a 1700s you know setting that makes you think about like all the atrocities that's going on in the 1700s especially in france and stuff like that and then they throw the occult in there that's crazy and then the aristocrats um yeah the uh, decadence of the aristocrats just pushing mm -hmm the boundaries of what they could get away with mm -hmm. because you could get away with anything. Desaad time and time again, got away with unspeakable crimes, unspeakable acts as he sought sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was thrown in jail. He's thrown in jail in Spain. He's thrown in jail in France, but he kept escaping because he was of an, he was of a class that the King just didn't feel worthy of death like we can't really punish him he's one of us mm -hmm. so time and time again Desaad 
kind of skated and his mother-in-law was kind of like, but he's horrible, but he just kept kind of skating. And that's kind of the milieu that you have this puzzle box be a part of. It doesn't feel so far removed from something that might've happened in the court of Dassad at one oh. of his houses. So true. And if it makes sense, like, and up until this point, the people who are handling the box or, you know, trying to summon the, the Satobites and stuff like that, um, they're people who, like, would belong in quote-unquote hell if you're religious as well, or, like, want to tamper and align themselves with that sort of, um, you know, superpower and such, or that that's, uh, supernatural. So it only makes sense in the 1700s where it starts off, that's the case. And I love the fact that the toy maker is so oblivious to the fact of, you know, he's creating this thing and has no idea. And then he goes and he sees all this stuff and tries to make an anti box as well, which is first time mentioned as well. Never gets it done. But, and then you hop back into the two thousands and you see his descendant, which I, what I like about it is it kind of places perfectly right after the third movie where the third movie, you see all these business wall street guys, I'm assuming, um, you know, going to this building that's designed exactly like the box and the interior. And it's like, it explores that even more. And, oh my gosh, I love that little kind of like callback to the last movie and then tying it into this kind of, like you said, contemporary time, uh, of like where that's going on. And Angelique is still doing her own thing. Just, it's really interesting to see that, you know, you never saw that before that she's living amongst the humans and like doing whatever she pleases and no Perpetual one has ever... pleasure. Yeah. Exactly. No one really kind of could, no crimes, no forensics or anything right. to say there's some serial killer or demonic thing coming out. Um, she's just doing her own thing. Um, I find that very interesting. But then we get introduced to, um, for most of the movie, the toy maker's lineage up to that point, uh, which I think is cool. Um, and then you get his, uh, I think it's his mother or his wife. I can't remember again who Kim Myers, character was, oh, yeah. um, but yeah, Kim Myers, mother is his kid. Yeah. There you go. The wife. Yeah. And the fact that Kim Myers is in this Kim Myers, who to me is, you know, royalty in the horror genre because of nightmare Two. Nightmare, yeah. I mean, she's in this and she's, she's doing a really good performance of the kid in this movie. Um, I love the part where it shows Angelique you know, realizing that, that the toy maker is part of the lineage. Cause she's been around for 200 years now. Um, she tries to get, I don't know if she purposely tries to summon pinhead or not, but she, she gets this guy uh, to play with the box and then just sacrifice him. And I'm like, Oh, I love this. You know, like here's someone who knows how to use the box and know what the fuck they're doing with it. Um, then you get this awesome intro it almost feels like a hero shot. You see that you see pinhead come in and I'm like, I hope in every movie in the franchise, Pinhead has like this grandiose, you know, introduction. It feels very different from when he was first shown in the first movie or even the second movie and how he is in this one. It's funny because that's another thing you're saying. It reminded me in Bloodline, the building becoming a trap and then the satellite becoming a trap. Always when I first saw it, I was like, oh, it's like the Winchester Mansion, the lore around the Winchester Mansion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to create a house that is the ghost cannot escape because right. it's so stairs leading to nowhere doors leading three story like a three-story door. if you actually go to the winchester mansion it's just a big ugly overbuilt house but the idea behind it is really interesting that you're tricking something non-human into mistaking where they are and never being able to leave and i love that idea 
of the descendants of Lamarchand using that, I guess, genetic memory. I, they don't really explain <laughs> it. But the idea that it's in the bloodline, that they will be able to take the inverse of Lamarchand's box as a gate and be able to create a trap. And that idea is fantastic in bloodline. And you have to build them huge and cosmic. It can't be a small little box. It has to be a skyscraper or it has to be a space platform. And that huge out of the box thinking is one of the things that I love about Peter Atkins with the script of Hellraiser Bloodline, because that's crazy. That's a really interesting idea that you couldn't have done in Lamarchand's time. You could not in late 1700s France, that solution to the problem, the technology didn't exist yet. So you have this, oh, so we're going to attempt it in the 90s. We're going to attempt the idea of building a skyscraper, a Marchand's box. It's not going to work. So in the future, when you can capture perpetual light bouncing off each other, as Lamarchand postulated, you just had to wait three centuries before the technology existed to make something that could trap the Cenobite. And that is such an amazing horror idea. That is really cool. And they could have used 10 more dollars to execute it as a better <laughs> visual. But it just, I love, that's the Barker thinking. That's that, or the Peter Atkins thinking. That humongous idea of making this cosmic and making this so much bigger than a very earthbound, very Freddy versus Jason, like the kind of other horror that was going on at the time. It's mm -hmm. a stab at making cosmic horror. And then when Barker wrote the sequel book, when he wrote Scarlet Gospels, and half the book is a sequel to Lord of Illusions with Harry DeMora's character, mm -hmm. and half of it is a sequel to Hellbound Heart, where you have the Hell Priest, Pinhead, kind of summoning, summoning an army across Hell to finally conquer Hell. What he's trying to do is what was in Hellraiser Bloodline. It's kind of hidden there where it was in the script, kind of cut from the movie, but a new order in hell is so much a part of what Barker himself would later make as a sequel to say, yes, this is about a new order of demons remaking hell as they want to see it and killing Lucifer. Mm -hmm. So that was a part of Bloodline at some point. But Barker's stuff, even in Undying, we mentioned the video game, Undying, yeah. his unproduced American horror script, um, Galilee, which is an underrated novel of his, he's obsessed with lineages. He's obsessed with like Kennedy's style families <laughs> and multiple generations. Undying is all about that. Undying is like Encanto, but with you know, the tortured souls figures from right. McFarlane. All these people in a house with different powers and yeah. they're all awful. So I <laughs> it, like that about that. But then that that's is, all gone after Bloodline. Right. And that is a good po point because like if Barker is so obsessed with um, making, you know, the uh, the Hell Priest Pinhead be this sort of like ambitious figure in Hell. Yeah. Um, it would make sense why... Um, when it shows Angelique and him, you know, reuniting and the way he acts when he sees her, um, they have like a lot of quarrels throughout the movie. And it's very interesting to see how 
the old mindset and like a newer adjusting mindset have to work together because it's like when you make a movie about something like hell and like about torturing people, you know, hell is basically a dem- like it, uh, it's a concept of like the times. So like obviously 1700s French idea of hell in like a in a Catholic sense there is going to be completely different in like yeah. the 20th century. And the fact that Pinhead is trying to adjust that for the sake of like keeping up with the times is so awesome because it's yeah. like, yeah, look at what the fuck people are doing now in 1996, you know, and it's sure, like, he's the Patrick we- Bateman Cenobite. Angelique is the Marquis de Sade Cenobite. So <laughs> she's still the Marie Antoinette. So <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. It's yeah. true. He's very much like order and leather. Mm-hmm. And like Angelique's like, I've had sex for 200 years with Adam Scott. We're good. <laughs> um, but he's like, no, no, your old ways. There's a new, that's what's weird. There's a new Puritanism in mm-hmm. hell as led by the help as led by pinhead that's hinted at in the script it's hinted at in the film but that would have been an amazing movie it's not then it becomes not just multiple generations of la marchand trying to stop the cenobites you track an evolution of pinhead as well mm-hmm. dimension i don't think ever understood who pinhead was and i like the idea that you could have used the same movie to track how the Cenobites change over the years as they respond to the new demands of humanity in response to what they are doing in hell. And because it's all about Lamarchand. And it would be really interesting if it had been, if it had focused more on that relationship and focused more on Pinhead's frustrations. What's a bad day at the office for old Pinhead? But it's but then Barker goes into it in Scarlet Gospels. Right. Like, I definitely very prefer intensely. I definitely prefer Pinhead in this one. Just basically cut the bullshit. I know what I want. I know how to get to it. Um because you kind of tackled in two and three the whole idea of Pinhead remembering who he was and yeah. bargaining and like tiptoeing around this unsaid, you know, authority in hell. Um, in the second movie with Leviathan, not actually being shown, just kind of like this penis monster thing attached to this doctor's body, which pretty damn cool. I'm not going to lie. But like, you know, the way he dies and then is brought back in the third one, it's kind of like, okay, we got his backstory with Vietnam and stuff like that. It makes sense why, you know, he wants to torture people. Um, but in the fourth one, it kind of gets back to basics and it feels and like a do more... Away with it. Yeah. The Elliot Spencer stuff is gone mm-hmm. from uh, four. And I respect that. <laughs> I never bought into that. I never, I, it was never my favorite part of it. I was, again, it was it like, it makes it too contemporary. Yeah. And I thought Doug Bradley, I thought they did that. Cause like Doug Bradley's in his contract said, yeah, I, I got to not be in my pinhead makeup in some points during the movie. <laughs> yeah. Bradley's a tremendous, he, it's, it's funny because it always makes me think of, uh, Hawkins and, uh, the son, when he played Hannibal oh, across yeah. multiple movies, mm-hmm. there's just such a weight. Bradley, because he worked with Barker on so many projects, he knows exactly what he's being asked to do. There is not there is not a big change from composer to conductor. He knows what this character is because he helped create him. And he really understands that. So no matter how far you get into the sequels, Doug Bradley is always right there delivering what he's meant to do. And sometimes it's the worst dialogue you've ever heard, but it's still, he delivers it with that just gravity that you're like, oh yeah, remember when this guy was, you know, 
doing insane stuff in the Hellraiser franchise. It's like Tony Todd. Tony Todd uh, has been asked to do certain weird things across multiple franchises, mm-hmm. but he still brings that weight. And that's why I always liked him when he came back and did little things in Final Destination, because I liked him as the more, I liked Bloodworth. I liked him as the mortician <laughs> because he added a lot of weight to that franchise. The way Bradley, I don't know if he would have had I mean, obviously they had two Hellraiser sequels without Bradley, but it just, I don't know. He really, in four, when he shows up, I don't think he's particularly used very well, but he just, it's fun to see him there. It's fun to see him back in the makeup, but it is, as we're talking about, I'm like, it is kind of one of the weaker, there could have been so much more with his character in that. Yeah, if they had followed the script. Yeah, he just seems like he's more interested in showing Angelique off, like, I can do this with torture now versus what you're doing. And it's like, where's the, I'm going to rip your soul apart, you know? Where's this other, you know, aspect of it? Although I do love the stuff where he, he when people, when he hears humans literally say like, oh my God, or like, why in God's, and he's like, why are you asking me my yes. thoughts on that? You know, I, I kind of like that. Like, Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? <laughs> it's one of the great lines of Bloodline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny because he does, it's funny and Pinhead is funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, because he's so arrogant and there's such a, but He's still a servant, which is weird because the new, the Bruckner Hellraiser, the Hulu one, leans into that idea of, you called us here. What do you want? You, <laughs> you like, you, this is a bargain. You want something. We're here to give it to you. you it's not easy to get us here. Mm-hmm. What do you want? And Pinhead always kind of, it felt like Pinhead in the earlier Hellraiser movies, always understood that humans are not ready for what's on offer. And yep. in the new one, there it's 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 much more spelled out. But it was always it always seemed like Pinhead's like, what do you mean you didn't want your face ripped apart with chains? That's literally <laughs> that's here on the Applebee's menu. That's most popular. That's what we do. We are the Cinnabites. We put chains in your we that's our thing. That's our stick. Yeah. And it's just so weird. His arrogance feels like it's born of several humans solving Lamarchand's box and not being like, yeah, time for the change, but being like surprised. So he's just like, ah, these idiots again. Yeah. And he kind of shows that he can read people's fears and their thoughts. Like he did with the two twin cops. And he's like, I know you two don't want to lose each other. What a great like sequence though. I mean, just the idea of hurting. Ugly. Yeah. It's amazing. So. This movie was definitely more creative with the way it transforms the the body and like with suffering. In the first two movies, it's like I don't know. I was trying to explain it to my partner, and she was like, "Why do they solve this box?" And it's like ultimate pain and pleasure. And it's like maybe they get off on this idea of pain, but then like the the back burner thing is that we also have to suffer, which is like obviously getting the hooks ripping flesh out instead of something. You know, it's like this very human and scary thing that we um i'm not you know kink shaming or anything like that but this very scary idea of like you go into your your pleasures a little too far that they can now turn to pain and yeah. that's what's so cool about the pinhead character and like this idea of hell that hell isn't this fire and brimstone it's not this dante's inferno type of hell either it's more or less like a hell of the mind of sorts yeah and uh 
I don't and know. This if that movie was... is coming out during the AIDS crisis. I mean, this oh. is a movie about sexual pleasure leading to impossible body pain, mm-hmm. and it's such. I don't know if anybody. I'm sure somebody's written the essay about that at this point, but <laughs> the Hellraiser that exists in response to the AIDS crisis, worldwide AIDS crisis, about finally you have the sexual revolution in the 60s. Finally, you have decriminalization, at least in America, not in the UK, of homosexuality. And then the sentence is, then the AIDS crisis comes. And that was a big part of Larry Kramer's play, um, Normal Heart, of just that, like, we have sexual freedom and we have, like, rights and we have all this. And then AIDS comes and it's like, fuck you. And so the age crisis as reflected in Hellraiser of pleasure seekers finding death is such a, it feels like an under um, spoken, under written about aspect of the undercurrent of people's at least responses to Hellraiser as coming from Clive Barker, who wrote in, who wrote at a time as a gay man himself, it wrote about um, wrote gay characters at a time when that just wasn't done in horror. In the Hills, the Cities is one of the great horror stories. The leads are also a gay couple. And it just, that's not really the kind of thing that Scribner's was putting out in every B. Dalton and Walden books in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So that undercurrent in Hellraiser with the pleasure and pain is a thing that might have gotten lost since we're watching it now years removed from the AIDS crisis, or that form of the AIDS crisis, but it came out right at that time. And it came out from a gay director. And mm-hmm. it was, I don't know, it was a bit revolutionary in a way that people weren't able to talk about at the time. So, mm. and I wonder how much- people who of... knew is there knew. <laughs> right. And I wonder like how much of that was taken from the original script and like changed or was that- not even part of it in the first place is what I'm more curious to even know about. Cause this movie sounds like there was so many, like you keep saying, there's so many things that were missing. And I don't know if it's because dimension was just like, that's too expensive or because they thought that wasn't going to make money. Or, you know, we talk about bashing studios like Warner brothers today and stuff like that. And it's like, I wonder if they just didn't want to do that, which, you know, I don't, you don't hear anything about dimensions anymore. And it's like, I wonder how much would play into that. Yeah. Because Harvey's on trial for rape out here in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bob has disappeared because of he knew, mm-hmm. um, Ellie allegedly knew. Yeah. Um, the thing with Bloodline very specifically was, yeah, this big script. It was like Barker wrote the script American Horror for New Line, okay. and it was like a forty million dollars script, and it was weird. And it's what he ultimately kind of half turned into his maze that was at Universal Horror, um, the uh, theme park for Halloween, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but. Hellraiser 4 just needed more money. Hellraiser 4, you had all these big sequences. You had a, the French sequence was a lot longer. The doctor who you see uh, cutting up the cadaver, yeah. he's in a lot more. He's killed by the demonic clowns. There's all <sighs> these other pieces that would have been a bigger movie. And it had it didn't have a happy ending in the same way where, oh, we're on the spaceship and we're out. Yep. Um, it wasn't that kind of film. And I think that at a certain point they made a decision. Do we want to make that? Do we want to take a chance 
Or do we say Hellraiser 3 didn't do that well? We like the script, we'll green light it, but we're going to cut all this stuff down from the script. It's not even going to get filmed because all the stuff in the script isn't even there. It, there is no director's cut that will ever exist of Hellraiser Bloodline. And so just kind of let's slot it into what Hellraiser would become a straight to video, super cheap, every other year kind of dimension release that -hmm. will pay Doug Bradley three days. We'll give him a day rate. He'll come in, do the makeup, say scary shit and leave. And sadly, it feels like they made that decision about halfway through bloodline where they're like, you know what? We're going to cut this down. We're going to save some money. We will probably make the same amount of money from releasing a chopped up version as the version that they wanted to make. So we'll save the money on the budget. We'll make the same amount back. And then we'll switch from a theatrical series and just go straight to tape. <laughs> and that sadly is what happened ultimately to Bloodline. So it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how like these big rich studios and production companies wanted to save on a few dollars, you know, but then again, I don't know yeah. how big it was money wise in the nineties in the mid to late nineties back then too. I mean, you think about 1996, you know, Titanic, you know, I think broke records for smashing the box office record and it had this huge budget and stuff like that. And then it's like, you know, money was becoming such a big thing. And then I feel like money in studios was a big thing in the 90s compared to the 80s when a lot of these franchises were just getting started and making a lot of money. And then the studios yeah. return on that is like, yeah, F you. Like, we're just going to, you know, machine corporate machine this thing. Maybe this is what Nirvana was and Kurt Cobain was saying all those times in the grunge era. Um well, it was different when your movies were only ever going to go straight to video. When in the 80s, when you're making movies almost specifically for an aftermarket and you're doing super low budget stuff and it's crazy. It's like Bob Shea and New Line taking chances on Nightmare. And by the 90s, when you start having Lord of the Rings money and you become this proper studio where you have shareholders that need profits you're not Avco Embassy being like, we should release Phantasm. You're no longer driven these tiny little companies. They were basically distributors putting $10 on weird acquisitions like Phantasm or Evil Dead and just kind of releasing them and hoping they can do a region because you didn't also have to go day and day. You could regionally release things. And so you don't have to make as many prints. You're doing nothing on advertising and you're going to make something back on video in the 90s it becomes much more corporate and because all of these studios start new line becomes a division of time warner dimension starts buying up all these franchises artisan starts buying up all these franchises and you just have these factories that just churn them out and what's weird is sometimes you got good movies sometimes you had an interesting director who knew how to approach a low but knew how to do a low budget film and there's good stuff there. A lot of the times you didn't. So, and you just get these movies that feel like they were shot in a week and a half. Mm, so, and I wonder how that felt for like the directors and these creatives who like, you know, had to adjust to that. So like, you know, how did Wes Craven adjust to that, you know, coming in from, you know, the seventies, the eighties, and then in the nineties doing the screen movies, obviously they were very successful. You know, I wonder of like how much of the game had changed to that point and how he approached that. And you think about, you know, like Sam Raimi, like we talked about, he was kind of more of the independent scene, obviously, but um, 
you know, you get these guys who were like big. I, to me, it feels like they were big head honchos in like the '80s because it felt like make something and it's gonna if it has a following at the blockbuster, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna you know build a reputation and we'll get money and be able to do these things. And then like now in the '90s, it's like the game has changed now and I have to play nice. But you know, yeah. like, do I still get to do my artistic side of it? I wonder. And I mean, I like to call it the MCU effect, right? Yeah. <laughs> like well, as long as you Craven, which you say, I mean, he did the screen movies, and Miramax is like, okay, we'll let you do music of the heart, his violin movie with Meryl Streep. Like Craven wanted to do other things. He was a very smart mm-hmm. guy. He was a professor. He like was a very educated guy, and by the late eighties, he wasn't like the movies weren't people weren't knocking on his door, and then he gets screen, and it just changes everything, but not always. But because screen made money. It's very, once you do that, I mean, that's the difference between some of the guys who I thought were really great in the 80s, like the guy who made The Hidden, like Shoulder or something. I mean, Jack Shoulder. Great movies. Yeah, Jack Shoulder, Mm -hmm. who did Nightmare 2, who did really good movies, but never didn't survive from the video era. I mean, we were talking about who was on Supernova, Jack Shoulder, one of the directors of Supernova, um, who didn't quite survive into the corporate 90s who weren't able to take notes, who didn't want somebody else cutting their films and weren't like Joe Dante, who could go to DreamWorks and kind of be protected, (laughs) go to Warner's and kind of be protected. You just had a lot of these crazy directors go off and make the mangler. So it's very, you just kind of fall off and it's too bad. Yeah. And I wonder how much, like, remember, I remember a year ago, you were telling me about like a lot of these scripts, a lot of these cuts of movies they had done, but then studios were like, we're not going to do it. So they just get thrown, the reels just get thrown out and stuff like that. I wonder how much oh, bits yeah. and pieces of those movies had to suffer because of that, like, I guess, big, you know, low indie, you know, boom of the 90s. Um, when you think about like Hellraiser 4, luckily it had a franchise tag, but it was built off the shoulders of like very low budget, very like creative minds, and it just caught an audience um, to just get to a fourth movie. Uh, I haven't seen any of them up to the fourth movie, to be honest yet. Although I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic into visiting that. Um, And I wonder like, you know, was that kind of like the, what is it called? The, the, the writing on the wall for some of these, you know, creators like, yeah, I could do this really awesome thing. I'll probably get one or two good movies, but then it's like, somebody's going to give me a lot of money and then they're just going to go ship it off. And then it's going to be almost not what I wanted it ever to be. Like what happened toward like John Carpenter when he stopped when he was doing stuff again for like with vampires and you're Mm -hmm. just kind of not seeing all the time what you wanted to make because people aren't people will give you the budget they think they can make back and studios no longer wanted to break even they wanted to make a, a measure of four because you have to split with the theaters you have to split you have prints and advertising you have to split with the theaters so you need to make four times the budget. And no, and these studios, when they're beholden to shareholders, breaking even means you failed. You have not mm. delivered profits for the shareholders. And all the time, um, I mean, all the people that I still know and like work around who are in that and are like, okay, we're going into production next week. It's going to be great. And then you get that last minute thing of not cut this scene, but cut a third. How do you even, you already have a schedule. You already have days. You already have everybody cast. You already have sets built. And people are like, cut a third. 
um, make on the fly, rewrite the script on the fly, make those sets you've already built work for the kind of bridge scenes between these two things. And there's so many movies in the Dimension catalog that are those where last minute budget changes suddenly make like people didn't try to shoot a bad script. So many things are just, oh, we have to change this at the literally the last second. Mm. So then you have a bad movie. There you go. I wonder if like a lot of times they sh- shoot these scenes that like that'll go the special features on the Blu-ray or on the DVD. Or at least now they're like, yeah, that'll be on the Screen Factory Blu-ray at some point or the Arrow video. I I doubt it, but it would be cool if that was the mindset there, you know? Like send like the wasted parts. There's so many, it's like with the Warners movies, there's so much visual effects that you can shoot the thing, you can shoot the plate, you can shoot the actors. But like with Batgirl, once they started getting the weird, um, bad uh, audience reactions, kill the movie and take the tax write-off because you're still going to have to pay 70 to a hundred million dollars to finish the film because shooting now is a tiny amount of the film. There's the secondary thing of do the visual effects for the entire film. And that's another, that's the budget over again. The budget of film has so little to do with principal photography anymore that looking at a rough assembly and saying, we could spend a hundred million dollars to finish this, but the movie's never going to get there. So let's just trash it and not waste that money. And then never have to do a split, never have to lose money on prints and advertising. And it's a tax write-off for the year. I mean, Batgirl, unfortunately is probably the future of those kind of films where bulking at a visual effects finish is what kills the movie. So mm-hmm. I still can't believe what happened to Batgirl. But yeah, no, me either. And you just think about all the time used and wasted ultimately for that kind of thing. Um, and I think Hulu kind of gets that. You know, they're talking about the new Hellraiser being on Hulu. It's not having a theat- theatrical release. Then you get a couple of months ago, you got Prey, the new Predator movie that released yeah. on Hulu too. Um, and I think that these studios are starting to see, well, we can make a movie and not give it the theatrical money, but like put it towards streaming and you get a very competent mid, you know, mid grade movie and you can still add some creative stuff to it. Um, so like maybe if streaming was an option, I bet Hellraiser four was probably going to get that sort of treatment. Like what kind of, like, uh, like going to video. Yeah, like going to a stream and it'd probably gain some notoriety in a good way instead of like how it probably was presented. It was a theatrical release that, I don't know, maybe you could tell me, Mark, when it came out in 96, was it like a dead on arrival type of reaction? It was more yes. like, it's the Hellraiser 4. No, everybody knew it was dead on arrival. <laughs> no attention, no marketing, no nothing, dumped into a few theaters. I had to drive to a theater I've never been to. I went to every theater in Houston. I think that's the only time I ever saw a movie at this one mall was when I saw a Hellraiser bloodline at it. It was like in the middle of nowhere. I think I saw Romeo is bleeding at that theater. And that was the only other, it it was not given any kind of release. People knew it was like the remake of um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers that Ava Ferrara did. It was supposed to be this big thing. You're like, ah, it's Ava Ferrara. And then when it came out, it's like on one screen and you're kind of like, oh, I guess they they lost hope at the 11th hour. And they did That's... a contractually obligated theatrical release. So, mm, yeah. So I wonder if, like, with streaming, it's kind of helping those kind of movies. 
kind you know maybe it'll be a shutter exclusive quote unquote you know what i mean kind of like the red can, badge just, there you need marketing you need prey if everything happened like prey where they put a lot of money behind the they spent more on marketing than that than they spent on making it which is you know happens mm-hmm. um once they knew they had something that audiences liked they didn't have to put in theaters, which is a mess. I mean, putting anything into a theaters during COVID was yeah. a crapshoot. Will this be yeah. the week of a surge? And you've got all the ad- trailers saying it's coming out on this date. You've got every theater holding spots. And then that's the weekend that's in the middle of a surge and no one goes to theaters. With streaming, they were like, we have this movie people love. We have a lot of subscribers to Hulu, but we have even more subscribers to the Disney plus Hulu ESPN bundle. We don't have to lose money on a split with theaters. If we just put this there, there's a thing called first streams. And if we can show to our stockholders that, yeah, we're eating it on the budget of Prey, but the number of first streams, people who bought Hulu, subscribed to Hulu, and this is the first thing they did, proving that they subscribed to Hulu because of Prey. Financially, then that makes sense for them. And it mm-hmm. become first streams, first streams for AWOCs. It's the new stream term, adults without kids and the first streams on the streaming service. <laughs> and that prey like Hocus Pocus 2 this past yeah. week was a huge driver for Hulu subscribers. So for Hulu, prey, even though it lost all that money you might have made theatrically, even though they ate the cost of the budget, it's huge for them because mm-hmm. they made that money off subscriptions. So I hope it remains a model. Right. I mean, it kind of shows how much has changed since the 90s all the way till then. And then even the 2000s, you can even just get into that. Uh, But with Hellraiser 4, we talked, you know, saying about how it became that contemporary time. And then it goes to the future, 21, whatever. It's this whole idea of like bloodlines. Because like in the future, the guy trying to figure out the the box is the toy maker's um, future generation descendant. And is figuring out this box. And he's still... I mean, I'm assuming because it's in 2145 or 2165 or whatever, he's learned enough about his bloodline and about the Cenobites and yeah. this whole idea of like where he came from and trying because he's obviously trying to do the anti-box equation and, um, you know, destroy Pinhead and close this gate forever. Um, and Pinhead knows exactly who he is and Angelique and it becomes almost like a Doom-esque yeah. movie at that third yeah. event, which i don't mind i like doom um the movie like that last like near the end those the kind of hell nightmare the corridors the court like the whole movie is shot in two hallways that they make look like a whole space station but they're just mm-hmm. repurposing the hallways yeah, yeah. i kind of like that idea and then you get to see you know the set of bites from the 2000s time in the future as well so that's also my question is like in Clive Barker's vision was the Cenobites not this established group of, I guess, like these demons, I guess you could call them, or were they always supposed to be ever changing? Because obviously we don't get the same Cenobites we got from the first two movies. They're completely different in this one as well. It's weird because the way he talks about them in Hellbound Heart in the first novella is very, there is no pinhead. There's the leader. There's the hell priest. And he continues that in Scarlet Gospels. And I think in Scarlet Gospels, he says, oh, the one the humans started referring to as Pinhead to get the reader. And then he never says it again. (laughs) It's hard to say 
because there was always the female one. There was always kind of the butterball one. And so he designed them, but they're so different in the movie from how he even has them in the story. So for him, as he's building, as he built out with Tortured Souls and what they did with Hellbound 2, with uh, Hellraiser 2, you get the idea once you start to understand them as earlier victims or people who have been on this road before, you're like, oh, so there's this entire trail of Cenobites. There's a zillion Cenobites out there. And the only one that's kind of different is the Hellpriest, is Pinhead, who has ascended to this kind of leadership position. But all the others are potentially, um, and that's what's so mysterious about the series, they don't necessarily have to be the same because then Angelique is born as a Cenobite in blood, across bloodline. She becomes one of the Cenobites. She goes from demon to possessing someone to then being a Cenobite. And again, spoilers on the Bruckner Cenobite, on the Bruckner Hellraiser, you see that again. There's a character and the whole journey of the film is someone becoming a Cenobite. One of the side characters becomes a Cenobite. And it feels like it's spelling out something that was hinted at in Bloodline with the arc of Angelique. So that's a good pull. That's a good pull. That makes sense. Like it's like over like a different legion, almost the same. And the I guess Cenobites have like this sort of like transformation that moves from one segment to the next. That's a that's a really good point. And you don't really see that too much up until Bloodline. It kind of like you we said three feels off. It feels weird um compared to the first two, but four nestles in real nicely with the first two for sure. Well, three feels like you're making Cenobites as like, oh, people are watching Hellraiser because they're entertained by the Cenobite makeup. They they like, mm-hmm. oh, that we're gonna do all these new Cenobites. And so you have Cenobites almost as marketing tool. You have Cenobites as what are they going to look like this time? And they lean into that in the third one. And the fourth one, yeah, they have the twins, which is a little bit of that, but then they really get into the mythology of it with Angelique. And that was really interesting. And it just, I don't know. I, for some reason, there's there's this weird idea that Candyman, that is a, like a lost fractured cinema, yeah. that it's a victim, that, but he was killed. So he's a, He's a sympathetic victim. He is someone who endured great pain after pleasure, after illicit pleasure. Mm-hmm. And now he is this. It's hard to make that connection for me mentally between Candyman and Hellraiser. But the thinking is the same. That you become a cursed creature. And in Candyman's when mm-hmm. robotized thing, he's got the hook embedded in his flesh. He has his permanently severed arm. He has bees that fly out of him. There are aspects of Daniel Robitaille that are cinnab- that when you really try to figure out what a cinnabite is, it's not that far off from what has ha- what not his origin, but what how he expresses his own current pain. So That's, yeah, I see that the way of looking of at cinnabites through that. I never thought of it that way, but that does. I mean, yeah, I can I can't see them being like together in like this shared universe or anything like that, but that totally makes sense. The same mindset is there. Of you because- are tortured by what has led you here and that you have to carry forever. Mm-hmm. So but can but Robotai is sympathetic, Pinhead is is not. So 
I, but right. you still love him anyway because he's capricious <laughs> and arrogant and he's an asshole. So right, right, right. Uh, As you say, like, it seems like with the Cenobites, I don't know. In all the other ones, it seems like he has like this posse. It seems like these are my Cenobites, and then it's like in the fourth one, he's like, "I'm making my own, but I have yeah. to uh, work with Angelique." You know, um, which I think I I think it's a really good combination of like them playing off each other. Although I would have wished that Pinhead was kind of like the main guy are the main bad guy in this and it's just basically him just wrecking havoc even though he's he is really just causing all the carnage and mayhem um you do get that nice dynamic i don't know do you think that kind of works better because in the first couple ones it's just mostly him running the show and i really enjoyed that yeah they're like henchmen Mm -hmm. and in this again if hellraiser if bloodline had been a if they had really kind of brought out that relationship that's in atkins's script where angelique represents the old version of hell and pinhead's the new order i think that would have made a really even better dynamic between the two of them as competing ideas of even what a cinnabite's what a cinnabite's mission is to be on earth how is a cinnabite meant to relate to humans because angelique is a servant to parks and recreations adam scott (laughs) she is still but then he gets in the way of hell which kind of works kind of doesn't yeah. Um, and she kills him for like nothing. You're like, oh, okay, there's that clause. It's like the Santa Claus of the Hellraiser series. <laughs> she gets in the way of hell and she just offs him. And you're like, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah. Um, but that idea of playing the two of them off in that way, I think would have been a really interesting way to, again, as we're talking about what I, what I personally think would make a more interesting bloodline, really seeing this evolution of Pinhead over several centuries. I think building out Angelique as the person that um, that the exposition is bounced off of, that she she's a constant, Pinhead is not. So you really see that evolution through her eyes. I think could have worked great, mm-hmm. but I don't think the Weinstein's ever understood Hellraiser. So yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I mean, you think about like Stephen King and his works with like you know, you know, making the novels for these movies. I don't know how much work and hand that uh, Stephen King had in a lot of those movies, um, but it sounds like, from what you've told me and what I can only imagine when watching the Hellraiser movies, that Clyde Barker was definitely like in the room. He was on the set, kind of saying like, "Yeah, that thing kind of works," or "No, that thing doesn't kind of work." And at least for make the first more... two, yeah, it just seems like he was very much like, "This is how I want it to look," because it's every transformation scene in Hellraiser one and two feels like it was made with love you know it felt like somebody cared about it it's like way like the first like the first two movies with those transformation scenes they almost i always think of uh, you know american werewolf in london right with that werewolf transformation and you think about the thing but it's like hellraiser one and two have some of the probably the best like transformation transformation of the body you know you think about like brian using as like society and that crazy shit with body transformations but like hellraiser really just takes it for the cake you know what i mean well the whole thing's built towards it it's so many of the bad versions of that movie you're seeing like a regular old horror film and then there's like some stunt makeup transformation thing that you're kind of like oh they wanted to do this thing that people would remember but it's not character based. It's not really part of the flow of the film. Hellraiser, you really got that the filmmakers and the this, people behind the story of it really needed you to understand what pain is going into this. 
the, there's work being done. So when you see the imitations of it, it's like the Planet of the Apes sequels. First Planet's like, the first Planet of the Apes is such this weird religious metaphor. It's like all, there's, there's so many things in that movie. And then a lot of the sequels were, so it's a planet of apes <laughs> and that's it. And there, there, there were certain things, there were certain pieces of it, but you kind of leave that depth behind. I think that's something that the franchise missed once, once they didn't feel they were in the shadow of Barker and even his sketches, his drawings for the franchise really do feel like they influenced Cenobites going forward. But once his presence isn't being felt, I don't think it was the freeing aspect that the wine scenes might have thought. Like his name's still on him. He got a check. But as long as you don't have Atkins who worked with him and is showing him scripts and asking his input and getting all of that, once you lose that we're beholden to what Clive thinks, it becomes a very different franchise. It becomes Twilight Zone, but instead of Rod Serling, you have Pinhead. And that's mm. not what the first four films were. Even at the lowest point, even in three, that's not what three was. So, yeah. and I'm not, he- and I am not here to defend Hellraiser <laughs> Three Hell on Earth. Right? Yeah. No, I don't blame you. And for some reason, they include that in the Arrow box sets, but they don't, they don't make enough room for that fourth one too, which feels like an incomplete box set. Yeah. What can you do? Yeah, right. It's like it seems like when horror movies get to that fourth movie, it's always like the end of a trilogy. They say an end of a trilogy, but it's still really four movies because <laughs> it's yeah. like it's it's weird how it, horror movies do that. Um, but well, sometimes are... by the fourth one, it's a new company. I mean, oh. look at this new one. You kind of things have changed hands. Things are kind of. I mean, think about how many different iterations of Friday the 13th. There's the weird, there's the big official Paramount years when Frank Mancuso Jr. is in the credits of every film. And then that just stops. And then they become the New Line movies. And then there are the old original Boston Mob Money ones with the first ones. And it just, there's different iterations. So you're serving different masters across a franchise. And four really does feel like, okay, now we're teeing up an endless straight to video franchise. So, oh. and it's tough because they didn't make that decision before the movie started. So mm, yeah, I well. see that that totally makes more sense. The way you say that with those kind of movies and especially when you talk about Friday the 13th. Um, yeah, that, that, that definitely feels like that. Um, oh, geez. I had like a really good thought that I totally blinked out on. Um, man, why am I blanking all that? I don't know. I'll probably forget it right before the end of it. Um, let's see, Friday Thirteenth. We talked about that part. It's something you had said. Something about you get to the fourth. Oh, my big gripe. Why is the new one called Hellraiser? Why are we doing this with new reboot quote unquote movies? We got Scream this year, and it's just called Scream. We got a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. It's called Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Why it doesn't are test two- well? It doesn't test. again i hate to like the inside baseball of it sequels don't test like putting that four five six because you have this whole idea of the first movies are great but once you start getting up there like the halloween franchise after four Mm -hmm. you start getting diminishing returns when people think of a sixth or seventh movie in a franchise it just calls to mind the dimension movies it just calls to mind children of the corn seven you just start thinking of the diminishing returns you don't think about live and let die you don't think because they didn't put numbers on the james bond franchise 
you don't you start to think oh they're they have to be running out uh they have to be running out of gas and it's such a great i mean friday the 13th proved it you slap friday the 13th on friday the 13th part 12 and sold a lot of tickets they did that with and just it makes sense and my residual checks say friday the 13th part 12 but the poster says friday the 13th so it works and it worked for hellraiser if you called the hulu hellraiser hellraiser like 11 or 10 or 9 or whichever they're going to choose to say it really is much more of a sequel to two um if you call it that people oh should i watch the other movies first or oh i might not i can't just jump into this series but if you con them if you con the casual viewer into oh no it's just it's a reboot call it's a reboot it's this they don't have to care and hell the hulu hellraiser is essentially a sequel. The LaMarchand's box exists. Mm-hmm. People have known about it. People have been playing with this for a long time. They know the Lament Confederation. It is a sequel. But calling it Hellraiser suddenly becomes an event that Hulu can sell in a way that they can't sell Hellraiser 9. I mean, Predator, calling it Prey, I mean, that was genius marketing. That was... exactly. There's so many great reasons why calling it prey because she's the prey and like you got yeah. just genius. Whoever was like, you know what, we're calling it prey. Yeah, deserves stock options. What a genius that guy is, or whoever that was. I mean, think about if Hellraiser is at Hellraiser one, and then you get Hellbound, Hellraiser two. Imagine if they kept going with that, like Hellbound, and then you know, like Hellseeker, and then just calling it Inferno. You know, hell in like, a handbasket. Yeah, you could just <laughs> keep doing hell jokes, highway to hell, do there one on the go. road where pinheads in a car. I mean, yeah, you could just you could really milk that. But I bet they're going to call the next one just Hellraiser. What do you think, Hellraiser two, or are they going to call because they're calling Scream? They're going to call it Scream six, right? The next one, the New York uh, one. I think they're gonna. I don't know. They're probably gonna do the whole damn David Gordon Green thing, where they call it Halloween, Halloween oh, kills, Halloween ends. It's oh. like it's not ending. It's David for some. I think David Gordon Green has dirt on somebody in Hollywood because why else are we giving him a trilogy of night of oh. My, Michael Myers? I don't get it. I'm Especially fatigued. I am fatigued on those Halloween movies already. I'll see him, but I, I'm just like I know. I don't know. It's like with Hellraiser, it's like they're probably going to do something like that. They got Hellraiser, they're probably going to be, it's going to probably be called Hellraiser Returns, and then we'll get Hellraiser. Hellraiser-er. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't yeah, know. This is like the constant battle, internal battle I have with like loving horror movies. And, you know, we need to be on Shutter right now, and, and we need to do like a mini document, a mini series on like the naming of sequels because uh, it's like, uh, I like seeing a number. I like seeing, I, I always think, one day in my life, I want to go to a theater in the matinee um, printouts on the outside the theater. It's going to say like Friday the 13th, nine. I'm going to see the I and X or something like that. And it's just going to be so cool to see like, wow, we're in the ninth movie here. That's awesome. I like it's a spiral. Like that. A saw story. I mean, nothing <laughs> against spiral, but the marketing of that was very like, so how do we, we can't call it saw because we already went to that well of starting it over again. So we're going to call mm-hmm. it this. It's a sequel. But it just, it was weird how, that would have been a fun marketing meeting. Like Mm -hmm. sitting to watch, how do you do this again? How do you figure out how to reboot 
something that's already and chainsaw they're doing that every time that changes hands now to netflix and new line wherever that lands next they're having that problem where they just kind of call every single one texas chainsaw massacre now and so there's like 10 movies it's like the haunting it's one of those movies that every 10 years there's another movie called the haunting every 10 years or every five years there's a movie called the texas chainsaw massacre pretty much i think every studio needs to borrow the tie needs to adopt the Ty West way where you have X and then you call the next one Pearl. And then the next one, I, yeah. th- I forget what he called the next one's going to be, but that's the way to do it. Or even Rob Zombie for crying out loud. House of Thousand Corpse, Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell. That's how you name sequel movies like that. That I, was I mean, smart. Yeah. But that's also, he he, he, he had control. He could call mm-hmm. him whatever the hell he wanted to. Um, when you're on Hulu straight, like it's not <laughs> up to the, like it's, that's the marketing me. I, I'm, I'm sure Bruckner had, a piece of what he was that I'm sure he had a voice in the meeting, but so much of what that was going to be has to be decided of what's going to sell this movie. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't have called it house of or hellraiser of a thousand corpses or whatever crazy title, <laughs> though it does feel like at this point, they probably did go in with a pitch and said, it's called hellraiser. And they were like, get our checkbook. And it because <laughs> if you just say, we're going to be the definitive reboot quoll or whatever you want to call it of the hellraiser franchise we have the rights because toberoff freedom and we have the rights to these different things then you can just say okay that's enough and we can call it hellraiser we don't have to call it jason lives or or we don't have to call it jason goes to hell we don't have to we're not going to futz with the franchise title okay hellraiser that makes sense here's eight million dollars or whatever would have been cool if they called it Pinhead or if Scream 2022 was called Ghostface. You know, just name it after the... I wonder if people have... I wonder if they've made that... I wonder if people have had that idea. If there was some meeting where somebody was like, we're going to call the next Scream Ghostface. And they were just like, no, we're just going to keep calling it Scream. So, (laughs) I don't know. But I I love the Scream. That's the thing. Did you... You saw the new Scream, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, on paper, that's one of my favorite twists ever. They're like, yeah. yeah, people aren't into stab anymore, so we have to reboot the real murders. I'm like, that again with malignant. I'm like, that is amazing. That idea is so out there. That's not some that's like Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's so weird that I'm totally into that as a reveal of that's <laughs> what this is. So mm-hmm. I I think the best thing about it was like it was kind of giving the middle finger to the fans who hate The Last Jedi and like the whole legacy sequel characters and actors and movies. I like that aspect of it. Jack Quaid. I mean, it was interesting to see the whole Jack Quaid thing because it was like, oh, he's so obviously the killer. He can't be the killer. And they're like, just kid. You you guys are you guys don't get dumb on me. You know, he's going to be a killer. So I like that. I just think can't we leave nev campbell alone you know it's like i got nervous with texas chainsaw massacre 2022 i got nervous with that too when they brought back the original actress and character and i'm like she's like doing the whole laurie strode thing and it's like they let these people live their lives in this universe you know yeah that was when i saw that trailer it was like i mean i get it Halloween, the first day of Gordon, it made like $100 million. Oh, yeah. I understand that decision. As a fan, 
I don't have to watch the movie. Um, but I understand if you're a financial person, why that's a decision you make. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's it. I, I get, I don't have to watch the film. So, and not every screen queen. Yeah. Not every screen queen is like Jamie Lee Curtis. Who's going to be super nice and supportive of the project that, you know, so yeah. I can see why she's still behind it and championing it all the time. Uh, but yeah, Halloween kills. Oh man. Yeah. Not a sequel we'll probably ever cover on here. Um, Again, I'm just always going to be mad that we got we're getting a David Gordon Green sequel, trilogy, but we couldn't even get Rob Zombie to do a tackle on even Halloween three season of the witch or just let him finish out a trilogy. I know he ended it perfectly yeah. too, but I know it's probably because they said you're not doing a third movie in any way. Well, the movie didn't again Halloween two didn't make yeah. that much money. Nope. He had it was sad because he had all those projects all over town all those weird horror things like his blob remake like all those really strange films and then halloween 2 didn't quite work and it all kind of went away and he went back into indie filmmaking and he didn't get big budgets ever again Mm-mm. so and then he made one of his best films lords of salem which is such a strange movie so yep. I basically know. i cr- i don't think a24 exists until unless uh lords of salem came out because yeah. lords of salem is an a24 movie and you know he did it before them and stuff in my opinion so but yeah um mark is there anything <laughs> else you wanted to talk about with the hellraiser franchise um before we start wrapping up everybody should read <laughs> clive barker like it, it's funny because the movies are great the stuff he worked on the movies he worked on I still love and I still love Bloodline for because of seeing obviously I'm a huge Clyde Barker fan. So seeing the texture, uh, seeing the Barker that's woven in behind it. It's like, again, what I said, I, I went to Halloween. I went to Universal Halloween Horror Nights to see his maze and was like, oh, the, the weird underground tremorsy worm stuff is stuff he had in his American horror script that he was going to come back and direct. He has obsessions and I love the obsessions as they are there buried in Hellraiser bloodline. And it sucks. It's like later once the writers left the Simpsons and there were people copying Mm. the original writers of the Simpsons, the original Hellraiser, when you feel the Barker in it, they're fantastic. When that's gone, it's not as interesting to me, no matter who is making the film. It's just that part's missing. So I ho- the only thing I would hope anybody listening to this is like, just seek out. He's such a phenomenal writer in those four first books of blood. I like life change. It's like reading Edgar Allan Poe for the first time. It's life changing stuff. So huh. everybody read yeah. Clive Barker this Halloween. There you go. I mean, I might have to put my Ray Bradbury books down and start checking out some of, uh, Clive Barker stuff again. He's always been like this, uh, this name that's synonymous with like hell and like dimension and almost too scary for me to dive into. And now that I'm older and going into it more, I'm like, wow, this stuff is pretty sweet. This is pretty good stuff. And I think the internet maybe because of recency with the whole new Hellraiser, but and people are going to rewatch those first two Hellraiser movies. Um, but like, yeah, those are truly some of the best like horror movies of the 80s in my opinion like they're just so good again i think hellraiser 2 came out in 88 and uh 88 was a great year for horror too we talked about yeah. rob zombies the blob i mean you get the blob remake in 88 yeah. i mean yeah, a go very check out- watchable remake mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. yeah kevin dylan gotta love him yeah. uh 
when he's not a creepy, you know, alt-right guy from Platoon. Um, <laughs> but, it's funny uh, because Barker's stuff then, it's weird because once he kind of matured a little as a writer, I was just made me think of that. Sacrament is one of those books. It's just kind of, it's a weird elegy book. It's not horror but he got some of that stuff out of his system with Books of Blood, his extreme horror. He kind of left behind in the 80s to a certain degree. And the stuff that comes out in the 90s and the early aughts is sad. And then he switched it all. He he pretended he didn't write any of that and started writing these YA books that he sold to Disney. It's very weird, the Aberat books. <laughs> but he really became a different writer after Hellraiser, after those films and after Lord of Illusions and it just felt like maybe he did that. Maybe he got that out of his system. His obsession with magic that's in Lord of Illusions and Hellraiser he, or in Bloodline. All that stuff kind of went and it becomes much more about America. He became a very American writer. And it was funny because you mentioned Bradbury. I mean, there's nobody more California sorcery than Ray Bradbury. And Barker with Sacrament... It's so just you get that kind of weird and Cold Heart Canyon. You get that weird California version of him. And then he starts moving in a Bradbury direction because so many fantasy writers in Southern California do. And it's weird to read those with the idea that he is here halfway through his career as Ray Bradbury's living only a few blocks away from him. Mm. So. Okay. And they were always at the same signings and always at the uh, same stuff. So oh, I well, wonder Ray if there Bradbury's, was any of that there. Ray Bradbury is a local hero for us. Like growing up in the Northern Illinois area, like, I mean, he, yeah. he lived right near there. So, you know, he, he's a local legend. So, uh, but, but we hey, now claim him wholeheartedly here in Southern California. So you'll have to fight <laughs> everybody in like the San Fernando Valley who's like, oh, but he lives right there. He had that house and he would always come down and go to that Mission Hills thing. Like it's, you know, oh, that's so cool. we that's now cool. we claim Craig Bradbury now. Oh, man. Well, I'm oh. going to the Illustrated Man and I'm waiting for some sort of like film adaptation of that in some way. Oh, there was. Rod Steiger made an illustrated. They made it. It's um really bad. Oh yeah. They <laughs> made a movie. Bad. They made a movie of Illustrated Man. And it's just <sighs> it, there's a reason it's been left behind a little bit. There so. you go. <laughs> well, hey Mark, I, I, I want to thank you so much for for giving uh the podcast another chance to come talk about another movie and give us some of that insight that again I just cannot provide and I'm always just talking with my friends online and, and thinking about why did they do this or why don't they do that? And now I get some of those answers there. Uh, and thank you also for letting me go through memory lane with like the early two thousands and all that, uh. like post nine 11, <laughs> you know, angst and stuff in films, because uh, those are just a part of my childhood and they're just like, they seep into my taste now. And uh, I just, yeah. It's good who- to create an aesthetic from Z grade titana boa nonsense that's 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 where you want like it's which you like you know it's it's obviously how picasso worked so <laughs> titana boa he's like ah i will create this next ah uh, well, yeah thank you, know. you for having me on your show i will see you next year we have to do this again next halloween and All right. figure out some other movie <laughs> yeah hopefully not final to... destination six yeah <laughs> We'll have to make you come on so we can talk about another franchise with deep cut knowledge on. Um, but yeah, Mark, again, I want to thank you 
um so much for going on for coming back on and talking about this stuff and and actually you were the one who pushed me to going further into the hellraiser franchise it's like i'm tackling a couple things because i've been going through the psycho franchise on another podcast but uh, now well, yeah my thing was like do i go through the wrong turn franchise or the other one was like do i get those dimension extreme movies and watch the hellraiser movies and now i'm kind of doing a mix of both i got through the first four so now i'm going to go through the wrong turn four so i want to yeah. thank you for that push right there wrong turn so it's funny because the psycho franchise uh i don't know i there's so much good in Psycho 2 and Psycho 3 that it's mm-hmm. and Psycho 4 to some degree. But it's it is one of those franchises that rewards yep. another another sally forth <laughs> through that crazy <laughs> franchise. So <laughs> there you uh, go. And then Bates Motel, which is fantastic. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Mark, if you ever want to tune into that, and listeners, if you want to hear my um, annoying voice talk about the Psycho franchise with my buddy Daniel on the Cobwebs podcast, oh, um, you'll be able excellent. to tune in there and check that out. So we're just wrapping up Psycho Four um, with Matt Bledsoe on the Film Feed po- Film Feast podcast. But um, there you go. Oh, all right. But yeah. Well, thank you but, so yeah. much for having me on. No problem, Before Mark. It. But I do want I uh, want the listeners to know where can we find you where 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 can we like plug you and I'm sure other people are gonna be wanting to ask you some more stuff um you know once the episode's posted so where can you uh, find you? like nowhere I've deleted all <laughs> my social media I guess like I I'm somewhere on Goodreads yeah that's it I'm I, I have an author page on Goodreads and I occasionally update like I have one of those author pages on Facebook when I have new short stories being published I always put a link to them. But other than that, I, I take my kids to school. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out there. So you're just too busy hanging out with Sam Raimi all the time. Talking yeah, no, I'm too busy going to like um, my daughter's show choir rehearsal <laughs> and like taking the other one to fencing and karate. So I, there's no illusions here. There's no like ah oh, the Hollywood of it all. It's like no, no, no. I'm I'm a, I'm a soccer mom. So there you go. Get the kids in. So. Well, Mark, again though. I want to thank you for coming back on. Um, it was a lot of fun. I hope to have you on. Hopefully not in a year's again um, passing, but again, uh, big, big, big fan. So um, other than that, for those listening, don't forget to tune in next week. We're going to have Roman Chimani and Tyler Jensen on to talk about uh, Final Destination 3 um, on next yeah. Friday as well. So, a great film. They, really great. I'm so excited to have those two on. But um, other than that, if you are a fan of the podcast, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SequelPod. Uh, email the show at SequelPod at gmail.com if you have recommendations or thoughts and stuff as well. We always like to hear that feedback there. You can follow me, Chris, at Hurtastic underscore Chris. Don't forget to follow the YouTube channel as well. But other than that, if you are not going through the Hellraiser franchise in October, you really care about cinema. What are you even doing with your life? Yeah. There you go. Other than that, you it have has a great... such sights to show you. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Other than that, we'll see you next time.